Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Becklin, a human rights practitioner, currently visiting fellow at Yale Law School and the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ellen Pearson about her book, Chasing Wrong, Chasing Rights, A Personal Journey of Fighting for Justice Around the World, published just a few months ago as a book, ebook, and audiobook by Simon & Chester. Chasing Wrong, Chasing Rights is a personal account of Elaine's career in human rights. She's currently the Asia Director at Human Rights Watch, but it's much more than that. It's also a personal journey, and insiders peek into how international human rights organizations do their work, a primer on advocacy with governments, an indictment of Australia's human rights record and foreign policy, a bit about a career guide for people who want to work in human rights as well, and a reflection about what it takes for human rights change to happen. It also comes strongly as a tribute to the victims and activists that Elaine met, worked with, and fought for over the years in Thailand, Indonesia, Cambodia, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Papua New Guinea, Australia, and many other places. I'm delighted to have her on the show today. Elaine? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Ellen, I wonder if we could start with um, a simple question. What does Human Rights Watch do and what do you do at Human Rights Watch? Yeah, so Human Rights Watch is a global organisation that investigates human rights abuses wherever they occur around the world. We conduct fact-finding investigations, we gather evidence, we talk to witnesses, we talk to victims, and then we compile that information in reports and we use that information to make recommendations to governments. We try and expose these abuses, but we also try and press and advocate for change. Uh, so we do this work in more than 90 countries around the world. Um, Human Rights Watch has grown, actually, over the time that I've joined Human Rights Watch. When we, when I started back in 2007, I think we had about 200 staff, and now we've tripled in size. We have about 600 uh, staff all over the world, many different nationalities, and covering a whole range of different country situations um, and also thematic situations like women's rights, children's rights, counterterrorism, and so on. And my job now at Human Rights Watch is as Asia Director. So it's actually the largest programmatic division at Human Rights Watch, spanning more than 20 countries from Afghanistan all the way to China, down to Australia and the Pacific. Uh, So, you know, just a small patch of, you know, very uh, stable countries. Uh, No, not at all. Um, It's obviously an extremely diverse bunch of countries, some of which, you know, are going through crisis. Um, So it's a job that really requires managing um, a team of researchers and also, you know, being attuned to various different issues, whether it's security issues for our staff, um, but also doing what we can to draw attention to the whole wide range of, of human rights issues in the countries that we cover. Great. Um, and in that way, the work that you uh, do is very much in line with uh, what you started your career uh, with, uh, which was uh, an anti-slavery work, and we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, but first of all, um, can you tell us why you decided to uh, write this book? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you outlined some of the reasons probably in the in the introduction there, but um, I guess for myself growing up, I was interested in social justice, but, you know, I didn't come from a family of lawyers or human rights activists. Um, you know, I came from, you know, a, a family of migrants. My father's British. My mother is Singaporean Chinese. I grew up here in Australia. Um and yeah, I wanted to write a book, I guess, for people from diverse backgrounds, just to give a bit of a sense of like what the work of doing human rights work involves. So I guess really to provide that behind the scenes account of what it's like to work for an organisation like Human Rights Watch, what it's like to work on issues like trafficking of women, what it involves day to day. And I feel like, you know, when we write our human rights reports as part of our work, you know, that's really about laying out factual briefs of evidence. And it's not really about telling the personal stories of sometimes how researching and investigating these issues affects us personally. So I also wanted to tell a little bit more of that backstory. Um, and also, frankly, you know, change sometimes takes a really long time to happen. It can take a decade or more in some cases. So I wanted to provide a bit of that longer arc that doesn't always fit neatly into an 800-word op-ed that you might publish in a newspaper, uh, but really sort of tell the longer story of how we push for change, whether it's, you know, trying to get accountability for war crimes in Sri Lanka or documenting killings in a place like the Philippines or pressing for justice for, you know, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, you know, detained by the Australian government in remote Pacific islands. And I got a, an impression from the, the first few chapters of your book that there were really uh, three or four um, key reasons as to why you, uh, you got uh, sort of involved in the, in the human rights work. Um, your family um, history, um, uh, immigrants, uh, at least in part immigrant uh, family, um, a teacher who gave you a book, an eye-opener book about the situation of Aboriginal people in Australia, about which you had very little idea, apparently, <laughs> until you read it. Um, and then uh, something that we may be grateful for, for uh, Paula Hansen and, and the One Nation, uh, which was the... Uh, a, political campaign uh, against Asians. Uh, can you tell, uh, these, are, these are the three that really jump off the pages, but uh, tell us a little bit more about how you, how you got, how, do you, how you knew that this is the kind of work you wanted to do. Yeah, I think it's probably quite rare to put John Pilger, the Australian uh, journalist, and Pauline Hanson in the same category of motivating me to get involved in human rights. Um, but they did motivate me in, in different ways. And so, yes, you know, the, the book by John Pilger was a book called A Secret Country. I read it um, as, you know, a, a high, high school student and it really opened my eyes, actually, to the discrimination, violence um, and, you know, litany of abuses faced by First Nations Australians. Um, and as an Australian growing up, you know, in Perth, Western Australia, um, that book really shocked me. And, you know, it made me really interested, actually, in telling these stories in a powerful way um, in order to expose these injustices. And then Pauline Hansen, so, you know, when I was a university student back in the 1990s, that was actually the first time that she came to Parliament. Um, and back then she made a very infamous maiden speech um, where she talked about 
Australia being swamped by Asians. And, you know, Pauline Hanson was the the leader of a small fringe party that really sort of made its platform on the basis of racist and xenophobic policies. And I felt that, you know, as someone from a mixed race family that had tried, you know, desperately hard to assimilate in Australia, um, my mother never spoke, you know, the dialect that she spoke growing up to me back home. She wanted me to be an Australian kid. She never put my Chinese name on the birth certificate. Um, to hear an Australian politician speaking like this, something inside me really broke. And, you know, when she came to Perth, you know, I wanted to join um, a protest. And it was actually the very first protest that I ever joined was, you know, when she she came. And I really loved that feeling of being amongst a crowd of strangers who were all united together, um, yeah, in standing up um, against these racist, xenophobic views. And it was Asian Australians, First Nations Australians, other white Australians, a lot of university students. Um, and so that was really actually my first exposure to social justice. And I was a law student at the time. I knew I didn't want to go down the path of being, you know, a, a corporate lawyer, um, you know, much to my mum's disappointment, who I think, you know, really wanted, you know, the the best and, and a stable, prosperous career for, for her daughter. Um, but that's what got me interested in human rights. Um, and it was from there that I started, you know, my my journey, I guess, um, working, you know, firstly in, in human trafficking. And you mentioned that you uh, defined as mixed race, which uh, really sounds very uh, strange uh, outside of Australia, since the concept of race has been sort of abandoned for a, a very long time. But your your mother was Singaporean, Chinese Singaporean, um, and uh, some of the most touching uh, chapters in the book are really about what you found about your family and your mother, your grandmother, um, and you being you, you immediately did a little bit of research uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your family history and what you found? Yeah, my grandmother actually looms larger in the book um, than I think I thought initially at the outset. But, you know, that was something that surprised me in the in the course of writing it. And, you know, I knew my mother, my, my grandmother had grown up in poverty in southern China in a village and that she had been sold to an opera troupe um, as a child at age 10. And subsequently, she was taken to Singapore, and she became quite a famous uh, Tuichu opera singer. Um, but, you know, like most Asian families, I guess things that are considered shameful that happened in the past aren't really spoken about. Uh, and so when I was writing the book, I just wanted to clarify a few facts. I put my grandmother's name into Google. I started doing a bit of a search, and I stumbled across um, the Singaporean National Archives and there are about six hours of audio recordings uh, with my grandmother about the vanishing art of Tuichu opera. And the recordings were in Tuichu in the dialect that my grandmother spoke, but it was really something just to suddenly hit play and, you know, years, decades after my grandmother's death to suddenly hear her voice um, again. It was so wonderful. Um, and so very kindly, my cousins in Singapore very diligently uh, transcribed all of those interviews, and it just gave me such an incredible insight. 
into what my grandmother had experienced from, you know, growing up in poverty in southern China, you know, her siblings starving to death, her feeling like, you know, this opportunity to go um, to, to, to work for the opera troupe was her opportunity to get food, to eat rice three times a day, which, you know, back then for them was a luxury. Um, and also just the hardships that, you know, my family had faced, you know, my, uh, my grandmother, um, my great grandmother, actually, when her other children passed away, and when her husband passed, had gone to Singapore, looking for my grandmother, trying to find her and was unsuccessful. And it was only years later, when my grandmother was sold to another opera troupe that took her back to southern China. She was performing on stage. And um, there was a woman in the audience who was making a bit of noise. And my grandmother found it disruptive. So she said, you know, basically, get this woman out of here. Um, she's distracting me from my performance. And it was only later backstage that she met the woman and that the woman said to her, you know, don't you recognize your own mother? Um, and that was actually the story of how my grandmother and my great grandmother reunited. Um, which was just such, yeah, an incredible story. And, you know, from that moment on, you know, I remember as a child um, my grandparents and my great-grandmother, you know, living in the small, you know, tiny cramped public housing apartment in Singapore right up until the time that my great-grandmother passed away. So, you know, I felt something of an obligation also to tell these stories. And I think I also recognised, you know, something in the spirit of um, my grandmother in the many hundreds of victims of human trafficking that I've interviewed over the course of my career. Um, and so I thought that, you know, I should tell something of that, that, you know, the resilience, the sort of steely determination, but also, you know, the, the courage and the certain cheekiness, I think, that my grandmother had and that, you know, many, many victims um, have in order to survive those experiences. And human rights trafficking is really where you started your career, right? Yeah. Um, so I I started my career when I graduated from law school. Um, I had a very kind um, professor who wrote to a number of organizations on my behalf. Um, I ended up working for a small NGO based in Thailand, the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women. And right before I started, they invited me to come to Geneva for a UN conference. Um, the catch was they couldn't pay for me to come, so I had to convince my law school um, to, to chip in for the airfare. But I went there as you know, somewhat of a naive 23-year-old, um, and it was just such an incredible experience. You know, I think I naively thought that all the NGOs would be on one side you know, lobbying the government delegates, lobbying the UN about the need to protect the human rights of victims. And in fact, you know, I had a ringside seat to a pretty epic showdown between two different NGO alliances. It was basically a battle between two groups of feminists that have very different views about sex work and how to address sex work. Um, and the alliance that I was a part of, the coalition that I went on to work for in, in Bangkok, um, had sex workers as part of their coalition. And, you know, that for me was the first time that I'd seen, you know, a, a sex worker from India speak at the UN um, and she spoke uh, Mala Singh on behalf of, you know, 40,000 sex workers in Calcutta, India. And she said, I'm not a criminal. I pay my rent and I'm here to tell you why we are best placed to address forced prostitution and trafficking and child prostitution, and that we as sex workers are actually the ones who bear the brunt sometimes 
of these well-meaning uh, anti-human trafficking policies. And that, for me, really, I guess, crystallised one of the central principles of human rights work, which it is that it is about the self-representation and participation of affected groups and really putting their voices front and centre. And, you know, that lesson really stayed with me throughout my career uh, working on human trafficking, but also, you know, later the, the sort of broader work that I've done in the human rights field. And you continue to work in, on human trafficking. You work for um, um, organizations um, on, on this issue. But what did you bring to this organization when you first came, went to Geneva as a young lawyer um, and sort of discovered the world of NGO politics, of lobbying uh, at the UN? And what, what is it that you brought to them? What, what, how did you feel about being part of that big moment? Well, I mean, yeah, for me it was like walking into a room and meeting the most diverse bunch of people that I'd ever met in my life. I mean, you know, there were sex workers from India, from the United States, there were domestic workers from Peru, from Bolivia, um, there were academics from, uh, yeah, from Singapore, from around the world. Um, and I was this, you know, young law student from Perth that had, you know, cut my teeth working three different jobs, editing, a, you know, electronic music magazine while at university. I had basic publishing skills. I had my law degree. Um, but really, that was all I brought to the table. So, you know, for me, I felt like a huge, you know, sponge soaking up all this information Um, but it was really great. And I think, you know, one of the other lessons I learned is, yeah, you really need to put yourself forward. Um, and I guess, yeah, growing up, um, I wasn't an only child, but I was the only child of, you know, the relationship between my, my father and my mother. Um, and so I guess I've always been quite confident and I guess, and ambitious at sort of putting myself forward. So towards the end of the meeting, when there was an opportunity for NGOs to, um, make interventions, I volunteered to, to do so. And I think by that stage, you know, a lot of the others were pretty burnt out um, by, you know, the toxic discussions that, that were taking place. Um, and so I made a very, you know, earnest intervention, um, basically trying to crystallise what I'd learned over the last few days. Um, and I was shaking like a leaf. Um, but, you know, I did it. And yeah, I think it was also what kind of got me noticed. And, you know, from that moment on, you know, I tried to help as much as I could. I tried to use those publishing skills. I was brought on to sort of help uh, publish and edit publications that our coalition was uh, putting out. Um, but it was also just such a phenomenal experience for me because it was a really interesting time working on human trafficking. The UN was debating a new international treaty at the time, the UN Trafficking Protocol uh, in Vienna. I got to participate in those negotiations. I participated in lobbying uh, delegates from Asian countries about the need to protect uh, victims of trafficking and the need to protect their rights by really documenting and pointing out all of the problematic ways that governments, you know, at times can actually, you know, cause more harm to the victims that they're trying to protect. So I think that was also something that I really learned that, you know, it's not like everything gets better when a victim of trafficking is rescued from a brothel or removed from the trafficking situation. Actually, the human rights violations can persist. They might be detained in a shelter. They might be deported back to the conditions from which they fled. Uh, they may, you know, have 
you know, uh, continue to face threats um, and intimidation from from traffickers. Um, so, so those were the lessons I guess I learned early on in my career, and then I tried to apply them later on. Working for Anti Slavery International, I had the opportunity to travel to Nigeria several times, uh, also you know to to Europe to address the trafficking of Nigerian women to to Europe. Uh, and then also subsequently working in Nepal uh, during the time of the the civil war uh, in the country, uh, doing some work for Oxfam. I think there is no better way to become a little bit um, skeptic about the goodness of law enforcement than working on human trafficking. This is really where you see that law enforcement um, can be a major part of the of a of a major problem. Um, tell us a little bit about the work that you did on, on human trafficking in Amsterdam and Lagos. And I mean, you, 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 you shifted from the micro to the macro back to the micro. What's, what was the, what was the, the journey uh, there? Yeah, I mean, I think when I started with Anti-Slavery International, it was to set up a new uh, program for them working on trafficking. And it was really about um, trying to enhance, I guess, the prosecution of traffickers by ensuring that victims were being properly supported and protected. And a big part of this was actually looking at the extent to which uh, governments in destination countries, so particularly countries in Europe like Italy, Belgium, um, the Netherlands, the UK, to what extent were they actually allowing victims to remain in the country? Or were they basically saying to the victims, yeah, we need your testimony, testify against this trafficker, and then we're just going to send you back to the conditions from which you fled. So, you know, as part of those investigations, I also wanted to get a sense of the different types of sex work, you know, that were playing out, um, you know, in places like the Netherlands where sex work is um, legal um, and then also seeing it play out in in other contexts. Um, and so I found myself, you know, visiting, you know, all sorts of <laughs> sites uh, where sex work is, takes place, um, you know, whether that was, you know, the red light windows in Amsterdam uh, also the the sort of street zones where um, sex work is allowed um, or, you know, also in Italy, just seeing the extent to which sex workers ply their trade, you know, basically by the side of, of the highway. Um, and then I went to Nigeria and I got a real understanding of why it is that Nigerian women don't go to the police um, when they have problems in Italy or the Netherlands because they see the police so much as part of the problem. Um, and I remember distinctly interviewing a Nigerian woman uh, in a yeah in a shelter in in Italy, and she just sort of smirked at me when I asked her if she went to the police. And when I went to Lagos, you know, from the moment I arrived, um, I experienced sort of petty shakedowns for money um, from the police, whether it was at you know checkpoints when our car was driving from one place to another, you know, indeed, you know, even at the airport terminal. Um, and then seeing the way that the police also interacted with Nigerian women who were deported from Europe, there was no separation, actually, of, you know, the women who were exploiting others, who were the madams, and the women who were the victims of trafficking. 
Um, and so it gave me just, you know, I guess such a greater understanding of the conditions from which women fled. And at that stage, you know, in Nigeria, this is going back 20 years ago, there were very few um, opportunities. There were very few NGOs working in this space who were providing support and protection to victims of trafficking. So women were very much on their own. And, you know, women who have survived these experiences, you know, on the streets of Amsterdam or um, on the streets in, in Italy, you know, are, are hardened. And, you know, the only kind of support network that was available to them when they went home, if they, you know, signed up for it as a victim of trafficking, was run by um, a group of nuns. And, you know, of course, these projects are very well-meaning, but they were paternalistic and, you know, they didn't really suit the needs of these women. Um, so, you know, those were some of, I guess, the the experiences that I had and also just seeing the power, um, you know, particularly of the ritual oaths that a lot of the women um, had been forced to undertake as part of going to Europe. So, you know, these were basically ceremonies, kind of like voodoo, voodoo ceremonies, I guess you would say, juju ceremonies, they say in Nigeria, um, where they basically agreed to remain loyal to their sponsor. Um, and so, you know, many of these women really felt bound once they had arrived in Italy and they found the work was not what they had thought it would be when they found that the debt was exorbitant and that they were going to spend years paying off this debt. Um, they were very reluctant to leave because they were really worried that if they did so, some harm would befall them or their family members as a result of taking this ritual oath. <laughs> I think there is something quite wonderful about your book that shows how much you learn from each of the people that you meet and you work with. And that really is a fundamental truth of human rights work. You work, you learn from the people themselves who are facing this situation. Um, you don't learn from newspapers or books or reports or experts, although of course they're very important. But ultimately, personally, you do learn from extraordinary people or ordinary people. And it, it seems that you you have a particular knack for this and for sort of absorbing the uh, information and the humanity uh, of these people and that it motivates you. Uh, but you did move out of uh, anti-trafficking uh, work. Um, and in around 2007, if I remember correctly, you decide to make a, a big shift um, and join uh, Human Rights Watch. What, what prompted this, this move? Yeah, well, firstly, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think these really are about human connections and human stories. And, you know, a big part of my career has been trying to talk to, you know, a range of different people about their situations, you know, talking to the people who have experienced the violations, but also sometimes, you know, also talking to the perpetrators, talking to the police, talking to clients, talking to brothel owners to really build up um, a, a contextual picture of, you know, what the issues are. And, yeah, I feel very privileged that, you know, as part of my work that I have managed to, to do that and I wanted to share some of those stories. Um, but in terms of joining Human Rights Watch, after working on the issue of uh, human trafficking for, you know, quite a long time, I was feeling that, you know, governments were really paying lip service to the issue of human trafficking. They were throwing a lot of money at the problem. Um, but I didn't feel like it was getting any better. And I also felt that um, 
you know, these issues happen because of a whole confluence of other human rights violations, corruption, as we talked about by the police, the lack of accountability um, of state actors. Uh, violence against women is often a key reason, you know, why women actually want to flee their homes and, and seek a better life in, in other countries. So I was, you know, very interested in working for an organisation that would work on those broader issues. And I always felt like whenever I met Human Rights Watch staff, they were incredibly smart, they were incredibly committed, uh, knowledgeable, um, and I'd come across them in my work on trafficking. I spent time in northern Uganda actually volunteering with an NGO that worked on child soldiers uh, shortly after my time at anti-slavery. And I remember coming across, you know, a, a Human Rights Watch report while I was there in northern Uganda and just the powerful way that it told the human stories of what children who had been forcibly recruited by the Lord's Resistance Army had faced. I thought that report, you know, was just uh, so well written, so powerful. And so I wanted to to join uh that organisation, you know, I think for me it was like a dream to to join Human Rights Watch. I'd also by that stage had a few years of experience at the United Nations and, you know, I was a bit, I guess, um, disappointed with my experiences there. I found it, you know, a very large organisation, very bureaucratic, very political, so I thought that my skills would, you know, best be placed um, at a smaller NGO. So I came back to my NGO roots um, but then I found myself in New York. So I accepted the job as Asia Deputy Director. Um, and although I was covering the Asia region, I was supervising a team of researchers spread across the region, particularly in Southeast Asia. Um, but I was based uh, in New York. So yeah, that was where I found myself in 2007. You make it sound easy to join Human Rights Watch as the Deputy Asia Director. How did this happen? Um, well, I mean, I think by that stage, I had had a lot of experience living and working in different Asian countries. I'd spent, you know, four years by that stage in Bangkok, two years at the UN, two working for a local NGO. I'd lived in Nepal. I'd, you know, lived in Hong Kong. I'd worked on a, a range of different issues. And so I had developed, I guess, yeah, quite a bit of expertise um, across the region, you know, both in terms of conducting research, but also in terms of managing staff. Um, but yeah, I was pretty young when I joined Human Rights Watch. I think I was, you know, 32 or so. So actually when, you know, I got the call from the director at the time, Brad Adams, I was quite shocked um, that I was selected. And, you know, I, I went through this period and I talk about it in the book, but, you know, I, I didn't know there was a word for it then. Imposter syndrome, I guess, is what I experienced. But yeah, I felt uh, very inadequate for the first, you know, 12 to 18 months. I felt like I was surrounded by people who were smarter than me, more knowledgeable than me about the country situations that we were covering, um, who spoke in full sentences, who were very articulate. Um, and I felt like I really had to pay, play catch up in that first year. So I really hustled. I worked really hard. I prepped, you know, so hard for every media interview, for every advocacy meeting. And I had, you know, a really brilliant team of researchers who I worked with who were very patient with me, actually, and who really sort of helped me to understand and navigate, you know, the complexity of a whole range of issues um, that they were working on. And I really loved the, the work. I mean, when I joined in 2007, it felt like Asia was on fire. I mean, the monks were protesting and taking to the streets in Myanmar. Um, the ceasefire talks had broken down in Sri Lanka between the Tamil Tigers and the government. 
um, in Pakistan, you know, lawyers were taking to the streets. So, you know, I, it felt in many ways like we were lurching from crisis to crisis and it felt very exciting to be a part of addressing those issues um, and really trying to do something about, you know, these crises. You mentioned preparing for advocacy. Um, tell us a little bit about the Sri Lanka case, which is a, a sore point for many in the human rights uh, community, trying to hold Sri Lanka accountable for crimes of the past and then seeing crimes of uh, enormous magnitudes uh, unfurled very shortly after. Yeah, I mean, yeah, writing the Sri Lanka chapter was difficult, actually, because I felt like I started to relive a lot of those moments of, you know, just, I guess, the des desperation and depression that many of us activists felt at that time during the final stages of the conflict, when, you know, it felt like we were shaking every tree, trying to do everything we could to bring this um, situation to the attention of the UN Security Council to try and get action on the Sri Lankan government. And, you know, at that stage, you know, the Sri Lankan government was, you know, basically herding Tamils into an ever-shrinking strip of land, um, which they called a no-fire zone, um, and they claimed it was a humanitarian operation. I mean, actually, free-fire zone would have been a far more accurate depiction of what was occurring. And they basically considered anyone who was in that zone to be a combatant. And as a result, tens of thousands of Tamils were slaughtered in those final stages of the conflict. And we did everything we could to try and raise attention about these issues. We documented, you know, it was very difficult to get access um, to Sri Lanka. We managed to get people into the country, but not to, obviously to the front lines. Uh, you know, we talked to doctors um, who were working and medics who were working inside the zone who were giving us, you know, the horrendous details of the numbers of people who were dying every day. Um, we were lobbying uh, governments like Japan and India, who we felt like were very influential um, powers in the region. And, you know, we were trying very hard to, to get them to, to take up these issues. But, you know, the reality was at the time, you know, the LTTE, the Tamil Tigers, also weren't doing themselves any favours because they were also committing horrendous war crimes against the civilian population. And so the Sri Lankan government, you know, unfortunately were quite successful in portraying this as somewhat of a humanitarian operation, part of, you know, a successful effort to rid the country of terrorism. Um, and so finally, when the war ended, you know, we had been pushing for an accountability mechanism to be established at the UN Human Rights Council. And instead, what happened was that the resolution which passed ended up congratulating the Sri Lankan government on the defeat um, of terrorism, the eradication of terrorism from the country. And so it was a really hard time, actually, for those of us who had been working on these issues. I mean, obviously, it was a horrendous time for those um, in the diaspora, you know, many of whom I remember picking up my phone and, you know, calling me in, in tears in that final stages of the conflict. But, you know, the reality is um, war crimes do catch up with you in the end. And, you know, after the conflict ended, you know, gradually more and more information started seeping out about the horrendous atrocities that had occurred. And this was photos, this was videos of, you know, close-range extrajudicial killings, sexual violence, torture, uh, graphic depictions of what was happening. And 
So, you know, I think these days it, it does go to show that, you know, your your crimes catch up with you. The UN ultimately, um, the Secretary General at the time, Ban Ki-moon, uh, initiated a panel of experts to advise him on accountability and they issued a very strong report condemning the war crimes that had occurred, you know, by both parties to the conflict. And that set in motion a new effort, um, one to... Um, yeah, remove that previous Human Rights Council resolution that had congratulated the Sri Lankan government and set up a new mechanism uh, really to document uh, those atrocities. And years later, I went to Sri Lanka and, you know, I met, you know, I, I was I was travelling in the north and I met with some of the mothers um, who had lost their children during the final months of that conflict. They were sitting by the side of the road, you know, in a sort of roadside vigil in a protest. They had photos of their children and they were so thankful that the UN had issued those reports. And, you know, that really taught me that those reports matter so much to the victims of these violations and their families, because finally there was actually some kind of accounting um, and truth being reported about what had actually transpired. And, yes, they were still protesting. Yes, they were still living in hope that they would get, you know, their their loved ones back. Um, but I think it was just such a, a powerful reminder of why it is that we do the work that we do. And sometimes we think that our reports don't have impact. You know, we look at the situation right now in China and Xinjiang and, you know, we think, gosh, you know, is this hopeless? Uh, but those reports matter so much uh, to to the victims and, and to their relatives. Perhaps uh, in the next chapter, we enter into the new era for the world, which is the era of the strong men who um, don't respect the sort of uh, paying lip service to human rights, whatever I'm doing in my country. Uh, it, it's a period where human rights become something that you can attack, uh, that you don't have to pledge to respect anymore. Um, and there is really no better example than uh, Duterte's uh, Philippines. Um, so from one crisis to another, um, you the next chapter, the chapter after Sri Lanka is, is on the Philippines. Um, why did you choose to focus on the Philippines? And can you tell us a little bit about the, the situation there and, and the story of Duterte? Uh, noting that, you know, his, do his daughter is now the vice president <laughs> and Marcos is the, is the president. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we look around the region of Asia and it feels like I, we've stepped back into the past. The Marcos is back in the Philippines, the Taliban's back in Afghanistan and, you know, the Junta's back in Myanmar. So it, it can feel a bit depressing. Uh, but the Philippines chapter, look, I wrote it because, you know, I wanted to tell the longer arc of that story. And it really starts in 2009 when I was invited to testify before the Philippine Human Rights Commission on the island of Mindanao in a city called Davao City, where Human Rights Watch had investigated a series of killings of um, drug users, petty criminals, gang members, uh, who were disappearing off the streets. They wound up dead um, after being threatened by local officials to change their ways. And it was part of an effort to clean up the streets that was led by a tough-talking mayor, and the mayor of the town was Rodrigo Duterte. Um, so Rodrigo Duterte also testified before the Philippine Human Rights Commission, and 
um, the person who was heading the commission was a tenacious lawyer called Leila DeLima. And seeing her grill Duterte, you know, really was actually the first time, I think, that he had been properly held to account uh, for these abuses and forced to answer. Um, and so it was really amazing, actually, to be able to witness that. Uh, I myself testified on the second day um, and we released our report on the death squads that were occurring in Davao City and other cities across Mindanao. And for a time, it felt like the killing subsided somewhat. Some investigations were opened by the police, but then not much happened. And, you know, fast forward to, to, to you know, 2015, and Duterte is elected president of the Philippines and takes his campaign of killing, uh, you know, effectively nationwide. Um, and drug users become fair game in, you know, the the war on drugs. And, you know, I... I tell this story because I think Leila de Lima, you know, really emerges as the hero of this story. You know, she then had become, she'd previously been a minister of justice um, in the Aquino administration. She then became an opposition senator during Duterte's time. And once again, she was a thorn in his side, trying to press for accountability, trying to call for Senate inquiries into the body count um, that was piling up. Um, and Duterte, you know, was being very open about these killings. You know, I mean, he even, you know, made uh, comparisons to himself and Hitler in a very sort of complimentary way. It was quite astonishing that, you know, he was able to to make these, you know, very bombastic statements, which obviously remind us of another uh, president, the U.S. president, Um but at the time, Leila de Lima, you know, tried to challenge him and she paid an extremely heavy price uh, for that. She was slut-shamed in the Philippine media. There were trumped-up charges brought against her. She's been acquitted of two of those charges. She's never been convicted of anything. But four years later, she is continuing to sit in a cell um, in police headquarters in Manila um, because she dared to challenge the, the populist leader of the country, Duterte. Um, but it didn't stop her, and she continues to write, you know, dispatches from her cell uh, when the ICC, um, the International Criminal Court, announced that it was opening its investigation into crimes against humanity uh, committed uh, with all of these killings in the war on drugs, the thousands of killings that had occurred under Duterte's administration. You know, she was right there um, talking about the need for accountability and that, you know, basically your bad deeds catch up with you. Um, and so I really wanted to share Layla's uh, story and about why it is so important that the international community don't forget about local human rights defenders who are really at the forefront of pushing for change uh, in their countries and that they continue to raise um, the, the plight of people like Layla de Lima uh, who have paid a very heavy price for their activism. I got your impression from, from this chapter that also other parts of the book that you don't really see a finality in international justice. It's, it's one, it's one thing, one project among others. It, it's not gonna, there's no finality. It's not going to solve everything. Um, there's not going to be a world court that keeps everybody in check. Um, how, how do you see a field that is dominated very much by lawyers and by geopolitics more than by human rights often. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we would love to see the generals in the dock who, that committed the war crimes in Sri Lanka, 
you know, the police officers and the leaders in the Philippines that instigated, you know, all of these thousands of killings in the war on drugs. Um, I see that, you know, putting the sort of threat of accountability into the calculus of decisions that are made by abusive rulers is extremely important. But I'm also quite pragmatic and I think, you know, I recognise that, yeah, I mean, even though we want to see these people in the dock, is it going to happen? It ha- it's happened in a handful of cases and those cases have taken decades um, to reach those courts. So I think we have to try and push for accountability on multiple, you know, different fronts and levels. But, you know, as far as Duterte and the Rome Statute was concerned, I mean, you know, in that case, you know, Duterte, he himself was a former prosecutor. He thought he was being smart by withdrawing the Philippines from the Rome Statute. Um, but what he didn't realise was that, you know, that actually takes time to come into effect. And so it, it during that period, there was a window where the International Criminal Court um, prosecutors could actually start their investigations, and they did so. Um, and so that case, you know, is going on. Um, now, you know, I mean, you mentioned yourself that, you know, Sarah, his daughter, is now the vice president and will probably, you know, try and play a role in blocking further investigations. But I think, you know, it is important actually that the International Criminal Court is not just going after, you know, abusive authoritarian rulers in Africa as they have done, you know, successfully in a number of cases, but that, you know, they do apply these principles in a, you know, consistent way. And, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, with Ukraine, you know, that's another case that's, you know, happened more recently where, you know, the ICC was very quick to be able to to jump in and obviously that was with the support of the Ukrainian government. Um, but there are many, many other situations which are also deserving of the same type of attention, places where war crimes and crimes against humanity are taking place right now, places like Myanmar, where we just haven't seen the same um, attention to to the need for justice. So, you know, I think we need to work on multiple fronts uh, rather than, you know, simply having sort of a, a narrow view of, of thinking that, yeah, this world court will be effective in, in holding abusive leaders to account. The, the last chapter in your uh, Southeast Asia section of the book uh, is on Indonesia. And um, I was struck to read that um, you were doing the work and Human Rights Watch was doing the work that really was sounding the alarm for developments that have materialized this week uh, with the new law. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, you got into the work on Indonesia, what were the issues uh, identified and how it links to, uh, how it culminated to what happened this week with this new law? Yeah. So, I mean, with Indonesia, you know, we've always worked on a range of issues from Aceh to West Papua. Um, But, you know, for a while, I guess there were these issues sort of bubbling away in Aceh, particularly to do with the implementation of Sharia law. So Aceh has special autonomy. um, And as part of that, there was an agreement between Jakarta um, and the Achenese government that they could implement Sharia law. And part of this involved uh, implementing mandatory dress codes um, that apply to men and women. But these codes are much more discriminatory for women because it requires you know, women to cover up and to wear the hijab. Um, and as a result, you know, we documented the sort of enfor- the discriminatory uh, enforcement uh, of these dress codes 
um, you know, particularly by the Sharia police. And before we did so, you know, we initially hesitated a while because we thought, okay, how are we going to have impact on this issue? We're seen as an international, perhaps we're seen as a Western organisation. These issues are, you know, very sensitive in Indonesia. You know, is it right for us as Human Rights Watch to be raising these issues? But, you know, ultimately local women's rights groups convinced us that it was the right thing to do because, you know, I remember speaking to a, a women's rights activist in Arche who said, look, when Human Rights Watch releases a report on these issues, it's like a bomb going off. It suddenly generates more space for us to talk about these issues. And, you know, local women's rights groups, they were too scared, actually, to raise concerns about these laws uh, because of the potential for blowback, um, you know, not, not just from the Archinese government, but also from Islamist groups that really rallied around these laws. And what we saw as a result was that, you know, it wasn't just Arche, but, you know, the failure of the Jakarta government to address um, the implementation of these uh, Sharia laws and their discriminatory enforcement on women uh, was basically emboldening other local government officials across the archipelago in more conservative parts of the country, whether it was West Java, West Sumatra, to also implement local regulations, forcing women and girls to wear the hijab, uh, including or the jilbab, as they say in, in, in Bahasa, um, including as part of the public school uniform in a number of different areas. Um, and so we documented this in a subsequent report uh, looking at, at those issues and how, you know, it might seem like, you know, a small concession to make, but, you know, if anything, the protests that are taking place right now, you know, in Iran uh, just shows how these issues can both galvanise uh, Islamist groups uh, but also galvanise, you know, real uh, opposition within countries by women, but also by young people uh, who who are really pushing back against these conservative trends. Uh, but, you know, sadly, we've seen a failure by Jakarta to address these issues um, and we've seen growing uh, influence, political influence of Islamist parties and Islamist groups. And this has culminated um, in this new criminal code, uh, which passed this week, uh, updating the code was something that was very overdue. Uh, the code uh, that was previously enforced dates back from the Dutch colonial era. You know, it was also problematic. Um, so for decades there have been debates about upholding, you know, updating the code. But instead of introducing a new code that respects international standards and that respects human rights, the code that ultimately passed um, is actually very bad for uh, women. It's bad for minorities. Um, a lot of the Western media reporting is focusing on uh, the criminalization of sex outside marriage. Uh, but actually, there's a whole range of much more problematic um, provisions, such as expanding uh, the the offences for blasphemy. Um, and I think, you know, people also don't realise that, you know, in Indonesia, it can be very hard to get married to someone if you're of different religion. It's basically impossible. Um, so actually, these laws are going to have a, you know, really negative impact on a whole range of couples. It's, you know, an extreme, uh, yeah, interference in, in and violation of the right to privacy. It's obviously going to affect uh, LGBT people. But I guess, you know, bringing this back to the issues in the book, I think this shows that, you know, sometimes the work on women's rights, you know, it might not seem like it's the most pressing issue to be addressed in a country that is facing a whole range of serious human rights violations. But the failure to address uh, issues like women's rights 
then opens the door to further restrictions uh, on women. And that is exactly what we've seen in Indonesia. Uh, so I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how these things play out, you know, over the next uh, few weeks. Back in 2019, actually, there was an attempt again to pass this criminal code, uh, but there were massive street protests on Jakarta and ultimately it was shelved. Uh, but this time it feels like the criminal code really took everyone a bit by surprise. Um, so I think we will see the extent to which there may be a bit of a backlash, um, but I think it also points to the extent to which um, the institutions that should provide a check on power, like the Constitutional Court in Indonesia, um, also themselves have become increasingly conservative and have made, frankly, some quite questionable decisions um, in recent years and have failed to uphold uh, the rights to religious freedom, for instance, in Indonesia's constitution, favouring instead uh, this deference uh, to sort of local autonomy of, of local uh, provincial groups, um, which has emboldened Islamist groups even further. You, you mentioned that um, one of the concerns in the work on Indonesia, but I guess it applies to all the countries in Asia and in the world, really, um, of being perceived as a Western organization. Um, this is, of course, a charge that is very often leveled against Human Rights Watch, uh, against international human rights organization, um, against the, the discourse of human rights in, in, in general, and it has some validity uh, sometimes. Uh, this is clearly not something that you uh, waste a lot of time thinking about. Uh, it doesn't come through your book. You're not anguished about you know, theoretical debates or uh, the last broadside from... Uh, an academic in an Ivy League university writing that is the end of human rights has, has, has come. Or uh, how do you how do you relate to um, this very real but instrumentalized issue of of human rights being and human rights watch being really centered and localized in in the West and intervening or seeking to intervene in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of time for academic discussions, I guess, because, you know, we're so focused on doing the work. But, you know, I think also Human Rights Watch has changed, you know, over the last 40 years. Yes, you know, in the past, I think it used to be an organization headquartered in New York of predominantly, you know, American researchers going out to the field, conducting fact-finding investigations, taking their results back to Washington and trying to sort of use, you know, those levers of power, whether it's in the US or whether it's in the UN, in order to affect change. And I think how we affect change these days is very different. How Human Rights Watch does its work is very different. You know, we now have researchers on staff of so many different nationalities. You know, I, it's always you know, better actually for us to have researchers covering the country who come from that country, who live in that country, who understand and know the local context better than anyone else. And, you know, we're trying to sort of translate, you know, our materials as much as possible also into local languages. Um, so, you know, I think there is this academic discussion that, you know, human rights are this sort of Western discourse. But, you know, I think you can quite easily debunk that by just looking at, you know, the protests that have been taking place, you know, in places like 
you know, China last week, in Iran, you know, in Myanmar, the women taking to the streets in Afghanistan. You know, it's not foreign forces that are telling those people to take to those streets. Human rights is something that is intrinsic in all of us. And these are people, often young people, taking to the streets because they have this desire for change and for accountability from their governments. And, you know, I see that across so many different countries um, that that I cover in, in my work. And I think that's also what, you know, really gives me hope, um, frankly, about the future is seeing the extent to which, you know, young people from these countries are really leading these movements for, for change. And, you know, someone who has spent a lot of time in, in Thailand and, you know, I, I feel like seeing the sort of young Thai student leaders who suddenly are broaching issues that, you know, formerly were absolutely taboo, that no one would ever, you know, want to raise, you know, like the laissez-majest laws in in Thailand. So I think, you know, that for me is very hopeful. And I think technology has played a huge part of that, you know, despite the fact that governments will try and censor the internet and, you know, will introduce new laws trying to sort of criminalise you know, the sharing of critical information on social media, uh, there is this um, ability of young people often to circumvent <laughs> those um, restrictions. And there is a desire to get access to information and to share that information with others in order to bring about change. And I think what you say also speaks to the fact that you decide at some point to go back to Australia to take the position of Australia director uh, for Human Rights Watch, and immediately the magnitude of the human rights challenges in Australia, both in the country itself or the way it treats uh, asylum seekers and migrants, um, but also uh, in its foreign policy, um, is really something that um, uh, animates you very much. And there is, there is palpable anger um, at the uh, resources, the political and financial and diplomatic resources that Australia has, um, and the deliberate way in which it chooses to prioritize other interests, or or really to conduct very inhumane policies, um, especially in in in, in respects to uh, uh, migrant and asylum seekers. Um, what made you decide to uh, go back to Australia in this sort of next chapter of your life? And, and how did it feel to, to go back and engage back with your, um, with your original country? Yeah. Um, so I moved back to Australia in 2013. Um, I had taken a year off from my job as Deputy Asia Director to do a Master's um, at Princeton um, in Public Policy. And it was during that year that, you know, I actually started to think a bit more about, okay, you know, what next? What more can I do? And when Human Rights Watch said that they were opening an office in Australia, I thought this is a really unique opportunity to be involved in establishing our presence there. And I knew that, you know, there was this desire to um, focus particularly on foreign policy um, because, you know, we thought Australia is an important you know, middle power democracy, it could be doing a lot more, it has important trade and security ties with a lot of countries across the Asia region, you know, we should have a presence there so we can talk to officials and politicians in Canberra, but also to the Australian media about what is happening in China and Myanmar and uh, Cambodia and so on. But as an Australian, I also felt that, 
you know, it would be somewhat um, hypocritical if we only focused on the foreign policy aspect and that we also, you know, needed for our own credibility to focus on, you know, all of the issues in Australia's own human rights record. And my return to Australia also, you know, just happened to coincide with Australia reintroducing offshore processing, uh, which is forcibly sending anyone who tries to reach Australia by boat uh, to these detention camps on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea um, and the Pacific Island nation of Nauru. Um, And the reintroduction of that policy happened right before an Australian election. And again, it was this sort of trying to appeal to, you know, the, I guess, these, you know, xenophobic, racist tendencies, particularly that are propagated by some aspects of the Australian media, particularly News Corp, um, to, to talk about, you know, Australia, you know, potentially being swamped by all of these migrants coming on boats, you know, seeking a better life without realising the circumstances in which a lot of people were fleeing their country. Um, so, you know, for me, it was really important, um, to go to Manus Island. Um, I visited Manus Island twice to document the conditions. I felt like that's where Australia could really, uh, that's where Human Rights Watch could really add value, um, as an organization. There were plenty of human rights lawyers and refugee groups doing incredible work locally on the situation on mainland Australia, but getting into, uh, difficult, um, remote, Countries is something that Human Rights Watch is quite good at and, you know, I felt like it was really important to document um, those conditions. Um, And, again, I mean, this was a chapter for me that it was very hard to write because I felt like, you know, I made two trips there, you know, we did everything the Human Rights Watch way, we exposed, we tried to shame the government, but the shaming aspect didn't work because the government's actually quite proud of these cruel, inhumane policies Um, They just tried to claim that, you know, that was um, allowed under international law. Um, And I think, you know, what really sort of sticks out to me in that chapter was, you know, also telling the stories of individuals who I met um, through the course of doing that research and who I stayed in touch with, you know, in some cases for years. I'm still in contact um, with people like Beruz Buchani, uh, the Kurdish-Iranian journalist who, you know, channeled all of his energy on Manus Island into making a film, into writing a book about his experience, into collaborating and working with journalists and human rights organisations to expose what was going on. Um, and he's now in New Zealand. Um, actually, this week he has managed to to come to Australia. Um, but Beruz Um, is someone who I think it just goes to show that if you give people a little bit of opportunity, just look at what they can do. I mean, his book has won, you know, some of the top literary prizes in Australia. He's been invited to speak at the Australian Art Biennale. He looms ever large in the Australian sort of arts and literary scene, um, even when he hadn't set foot, you know, in in the country. Um, And so I think telling some of those stories um, is also worthwhile um, because it shows the harm that is done uh, by these policies and also the immense human cost um, at a very individual level. In, in the following two chapters of, of the book, you talk about very particular cases and crises uh, in which you and Human Rights Watch and other activists played a, um, a, a decisive role uh, one in uh, two in Bangkok, actually two 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 cases that are uh, 
particularly uh, emblematic, I think, of the kind of combination of mobilization, urgency, um, media exposure, uh, um, backdoor diplomacy, public diplomacy, uh, the whole spectrum of tools that, um, that, that you can wield at, at, at Human Rights Watch. Can you tell us briefly uh, about these, these two cases and their outcome? Yeah, I really wanted to write about the story of Hakeem um, and Rahaf, the, the two individuals, because I think sometimes it just shows yeah, the, all the work that goes on behind the scenes to try and help people, you know, who are at risk. Um, and that's work that, you know, sometimes we do and, and we don't even really think about it, but it obviously makes such an impact on their individual lives. And Hakeem Al-Arabi was a Bahraini footballer who had come to Australia, had received asylum. He flew in. So unlike the other refugees, he was not sent to Manus Island or Nauru. And as an Australian permanent resident, um, he'd gone on holiday to Bangkok uh, with his, uh, his, his wife on his honeymoon. Um, and he was immediately arrested at the airport on the basis of a fraudulent uh, Interpol red notice that had been issued by the Bahraini government because he had previously been arrested and convicted in absentia in Bahrain for his involvement um, in the protest movement. And this kick-started, I guess, yeah, a whole lot of work behind the scenes, a flurry of activity by Human Rights Watch from our Middle East division, our Thailand staff based in Bangkok, uh, myself here in Australia, where we just thought, you know, if we can, you know, raise these cases, this case to the highest levels, you know, maybe quickly and quietly he can be returned to Australia. And we were really worried that he was going to be sent back to Bahrain uh, because there was a precedent for this. This had happened in another case. And we knew in that case a young dissident had been returned to Bahrain and was horrifically uh, tortured so badly that he had to be sent straight to a hospital on his arrival there. So this case was extremely urgent. Uh, we did everything we could behind the scenes. You know, we published press releases, we worked with local partners, but it was really the fact that he was also a, a footballer who had previously played for the Bahraini side, which made his case, you know, have this sort of new um, new factor where we suddenly thought, well, we can use that uh, factor to get FIFA involved and the involvement of sporting organisations could help up the ante and raise the pressure on the Thai government. And it was really the involvement of a former socceroo and broadcaster in Australia, Craig Foster, who really took an intense um, personal interest in this case and had, you know, this boundless uh, energy and enthusiasm to raise these, his case through social media, um, through uh, his contacts with the Australian government at the highest levels, also through his contacts at FIFA and the Players' Union, that ultimately was effective in sort of raising the spotlight on this case and using social media in order to prevent his deportation back um, to Bahrain. The other case which occurred actually in the midst of doing all this work around the case of Hakeem Al-Arabi was another case at Bangkok Airport of a young Saudi woman, Rahaf Muhammad, um, who had escaped an abusive family in Saudi Arabia, was actually trying to make her way to Australia and was stopped by the authorities at Bangkok Airport. Um, and so, again, at the time, I think those of us at Human Rights Watch were thinking, you know, what is going on with Bangkok Airport and, you know, the, the stopping of these dissidents? And, you know, these were two cases where there just wasn't time and there wasn't clearly anyone who we could refer these cases onto. 
Um, so we really tried to raise the alarm again using social media. Uh, Rahaf herself had broadcast her situation using Twitter. So we tried to amplify her tweets, her stories. Uh, and, you know, this also involved a former ABC journalist, Sophie McNeil, who now works for Human Rights Watch, who was really instrumental actually in also helping uh, raise the alarm about Rahaf's case. And again, it was successful in preventing her from being returned to Saudi Arabia. And so what both of these cases have in common is I think there were individual cases where social media was used quite effectively to prevent uh, these deportations. I think, you know, we often like to complain about social media and how problematic, obviously, it, it can be. Um, but in this case, raising that power um, was very influential with the Thai government. And, you know, the good news is Rahaf is, you know, happily uh, living now in, in Canada. She was accepted as a refugee. She was met by the Canadian foreign minister on her arrival in Canada. Um, and Hakeem is back here in Australia together with his wife. Um, you know, in both cases, they subsequently have children. And, you know, both cases were really used to shine a spotlight on the abusive actions of Saudi Arabia and Bar the Bahrain government and in particular to draw attention to the broader human rights concerns uh, that Human Rights Watch has been raising for years in those countries. And so using those cases quite effectively, we were able to build sort of a, a broader constituency around these issues, particularly around the male guardianship laws in Saudi Arabia, which is why, you know, Rahaf was stopped at Bangkok Airport. It was because she was travelling, despite the fact she was an adult, uh, without the permission of her male relatives. Um, and, you know, subsequently, months after Rahaf's case, which got, you know, global attention, uh, she, the, the, those laws were actually, you know, somewhat, um, yeah, somewhat um, revised um, and improved to relax uh, some of the aspects of those laws. And I think it's in no small part uh, to the attention that was brought to those laws uh, through the case of Rahaf. And the last chapter of your book is uh, a really a great example of the the power and perils of social media. Uh, this is uh, this this sounds like a very different time when Australia was in a very warm embrace with China. Um, things have have changed very much, maybe too much in the opposite direction now. Uh, but uh, and and it involves you personally. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about this case, and then I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about um, uh, having a career uh, in, in the human rights field um, and, and maybe a few words about writing, writing this book and what you got from it. But let, let's start with the, the social media storm uh, that you, you created uh, over China's influence in, in Australian universities. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it does show how quickly things can change. I mean, this was, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, I think it was yeah, July or August 2020. I am also an adjunct lecturer in law at the University of New South Wales. Uh, the national security law had just passed in Hong Kong, and I had made some comments uh, to the university um, expressing our concerns about the national security law and basically saying that it makes all sorts of things that, you know, are quite normal in a democracy about criticism of the government um, suddenly illegal and why that is so problematic, in particular, you know, looking at the advocacy with foreign governments. 
And I didn't think much about the interview. They released it on a Friday afternoon. I thought, oh, that's terrible timing. Who's going to read this interview on a Friday afternoon? And I woke up Saturday morning and I had a text from my colleague and my phone, when I opened Twitter, my phone just exploded. And there had been a huge backlash by Chinese nationalistic students at the university and pro-Chinese Communist Party supporters uh, angry about my comments about the Hong Kong national security law, calling on me to recant my views, to apologise, calling on the university to sack me, calling for a boycott of the university. Um, And, yeah, it was really quite astonishing how quickly the story uh, grew and developed over the weekend. There was um, the university pulled the story down for a period of time. Uh, They then put it back, but in a less prominent uh, location. They deleted the tweets promoting the story. So initially it just felt like they were trying to make it all go away by just bowing to the demands of the nationalistic students. And that made me really upset because I felt like, one, they were sort of throwing me under the bus just saying, well, these are the views of an academic, not the views of of the university, when I thought, you know, views about human rights in Hong Kong are not views that are particularly objectionable. Um, And if a university, you know, can't have debates and discussions about different views, you know, where can you have those discussions? So it then led Human Rights Watch um, actually to, you know, I knew that it wasn't just happening at one university. This was happening at universities all across um, the country, particularly, you know, galvanised, I guess, around the Hong Kong protest movement. And we also knew that not all Chinese students agreed. You know, there were Hong Kong students um, who had actually leaked um, some of these discussions to us. So, you know, we wanted to find a way to, you know, I guess, work more on this issue and really put the voices of um, pro-democracy Chinese students and students from Hong Kong front and centre of these discussions. So we ended up writing a whole report about these issues, showing how entrenched um, these issues were and showing the campaigns of harassment, censorship and self-censorship that Chinese students and students from Hong Kong face if they dare to raise controversial topics like Xinjiang or Taiwan or um, Hong Kong. Um, And, you know, to cut a long story short, um, as a result of that, you know, we were very pleased that a parliamentary inquiry uh, really adopted um, a number of the recommendations that Human Rights Watch had made on this topic and that a number of universities really have taken steps to address these issues, including uh, the University of New South Wales where this problem transpired. So they set up a new reporting mechanism whereby students can report Um, instances of intimidation and harassment. What we had heard from the students is, you know, students had said to us, well, we know where to go to report sexual harassment, but we don't know where to go to report something like this, where another classmate threatens to report us to the Chinese consulate for something we've said in the classroom. Um, So, and I think in an effort of how far things have come, you know, just two weeks ago, I spoke at uh, UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney, together with um, an Australian Chinese dissident, uh, Bariel Chow, who's also an artist. um, And they hosted that discussion where we talked about all of these issues openly. And frankly, two years ago, when all of this happened, there is no way that we could even get a discussion on campus about these issues. Uh, so things really have have changed in Australia. So speaking of change, um, one of the objective of the book is to explain how change happens. And you do that through each case that you uh, write about. Um, 
And I wanted to know a little bit more about your writing process, how you chose the cases and the countries that you um, describe in the chapters and how, how, how much of a journey it was for, for you to revisit uh, this work and, and to find the right angle to write about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd been wanting to write a book for some time and, you know, it's hard to carve out time on top of already having, I guess, a pretty busy job. So I thought, you know, for my first book, I wanted to write about something that would be, you know, somewhat easier, um, write about, you know, some of the stories um, from my work, particularly, I guess, some of the successful advocacy stories. Um, but, yeah, I really had to carve out, you know, separate time. So, you know, I took some unpaid leave, actually, when I got the book contract, Uh, really to sort of break the back of the manuscript. And I felt, you know, it's it's a very different style of writing from the sort of fact-based human rights reporting um, because you are writing about how these issues personally affect, you know, you and affect your colleagues. And, and so I felt like I actually really needed to, you know, separate myself from my day-to-day work um, in order to, to do that. Um, I actually had a much longer list of chapters that I wanted to include. Um, you know, there are many other stories, Myanmar, for instance, Vietnam. Um, you know, I've worked on so many different country situations, but, you know, my publisher was like, well, you do need to save some things for the next book. Um, so, yeah, there, there may be, uh, you know, a, fu a future book at some point in, in the works. But, you know, I tried to select stories You know, in part, I wanted to amplify the stories of people who, you know, readers haven't heard of before, who they might not know about. And again, I wanted to tell sort of, I guess, that longer arc narrative of sometimes how it can take, you know, decades to hold uh, abusive governments and individuals to account. And for the readers who are interested in maybe pursuing a human rights career, Um, there are many more human rights careers now than when you started uh, in academia or as a lawyer in international organizations um, uh, or in at human rights work, Amnesty International. There are so many groups now. What, what is the, the particular skills that you need to engage in the type of work that Human Rights Watch does And what advice would you give to people who are interested in, in pursuing this? So I think at Human Rights Watch, you know, researchers and advocates come from a diverse range of backgrounds. Yes, there are a lot of lawyers, I guess, amongst us or people with legal training. I think that helps us to um, sift through the evidence, analyze legislation, um, write clearly um, and construct um, an argument Um, but we also have a lot of journalists um, amongst us too. And I think journalists are also very powerful storytellers um, and are also very skilled um, in, you know, navigating and, and telling um, stories and conducting research. So I don't think there's, you know, necessarily, you know, one pathway, um, but I do think, you know, getting field-based experience like I had working in different country contexts was extremely valuable Um, because human rights work is not just, you know, sitting behind a desk. It is about, you know, getting out there, talking to people, understanding the issues, um, and then presenting that information in a compelling way to policymakers in order to, to bring about change. 
So, you know, my recommendation, I guess, to to young readers out there who are interested in pursuing a career in human rights is, you know, try and build some, you know, field-based experience, follow an issue that you're passionate about, try and build up a bit of expertise, you know, in one specific issue I think is, you know, particularly useful or a particular country. I think, you know, languages are, are helpful um, if you speak other languages as well. Um, and also write. I think, you know, writing, whether it's writing a blog, writing short pieces, you know, for a, a newspaper or a website um, is really helpful. Um, and then being able to draw on that work um, and show that work in, in interviews is something that I've always done is, you know, I've always brought along a couple of reports, uh, you know, that I've written or that I've worked on, um, I guess, to, to show the kind of work that we do, because our work as, you know, Human Rights Watch researchers, it is about storytelling um, and telling stories and showing that, um, yeah, I guess we can amplify some of the voices of others um, in order to to bring about change. But, yeah, I think there's many pathways, there's many more opportunities these days. There's a lot of programs now that also, you know, can provide opportunities to, you know, send uh, individuals to, to other countries or you might not even need to leave your country. There's plenty of opportunities working with you know, diverse groups of migrants or marginalized groups, you know, whether it's here in Australia or in the United States or, or other countries. So I think it's really about getting out there and, and finding an issue that you care about and that you're passionate about um, and trying to find a way to to work on that. And I want to know now, you've mentioned already that there might be uh, a future book uh, <laughs> in, in the work. Uh, what is what is next on on your on your journey? Well, there's not going to be a future book anytime soon because you know I have a new job now. I was appointed Asia director in September of this year, shortly before the book was released. So I know I'm going to have my hands full um, dealing with you know the multiple human rights uh, crises that are happening around our region. Um, but you know, certainly at some point in the future, I am interested you know in in writing more and you know I'm interested in writing fiction um, but I think that will have to wait um, until you know the the next stage the next phase of of my career and in Asia I mean I think our priorities right now um, well are various but we're particularly concerned about the rising authoritarianism that we're seeing across the region even in countries that are nominally democratic we're finding you know all sorts of ways to undermine uh, civil society and genuine political opposition which is of you know extreme concern to us uh, we talked a bit about china and i think you know we will continue to document abuses inside china but also the chinese government's uh, growing efforts to undermine uh, human rights in other countries um, and also we're really concerned about the human rights impacts of climate change and the environment. I think that, you know, is a key issue um, for so many countries across our region that, you know, are not necessarily the biggest emitters, but are really bearing the brunt um, of climate change through extreme heat, flooding um, and other climate disasters. So I think finding a way to address those issues through a human rights lens is really important. And yeah, I'm really excited to continue to work uh, with my uh, courageous and smart and talented uh, bunch of colleagues around the world um, in order to pursue accountability and justice, you know, for a range of these abuses. Lane, that sounds very um, important and necessary work. 
I want to thank you for being uh, on the program today. Uh, this was a wonderful interview and I think a great opportunity to look behind uh, the curtain at uh, the kind of work that you do and, and international human rights organizations do. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the program. Thank you, Nicholas. It was a pleasure. This was uh, Ellen Pearson for Chasing Wrongs and Rights, a personal journey of fighting for justice around the world. Until next time, thank you.